Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. I'm Brett Amron, and this is The Practice Podcast. Hello, Brett Amron. I'm Jeff Bast, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Steve Medwin, who is an executive managing director at Newmark. He's a real estate specialist. He's a leading specialist in the representation of owners, investors, and occupiers of commercial real estate. He's been in this space for 30 years. Is that right, Steve? 30 Just years? More than 30. Wow, you yeah. are old. Closed, <laughs> he's closed more than a thousand real estate transactions in 25 states, covering millions of square feet, valued in excess of $2 billion, with a B. He's got experience with landlord and tenant representations, buyers and sellers, land sales, investment sales, corporate builds, build the suits, acquisition, disposition, including as a principal. He's really done it all. And recently, he and his partner, Nick Wagoda, were named one of, I guess, two of South Florida Business Journal's top 250 power leaders. Congratulations on that, Steve. And welcome to the Practice Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. So with that wonderful introduction, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here in South Florida. Sure. So I grew up in Rhode Island and went to college at the University of Vermont. And after four long, cold winters, (laughs) I decided that there must be some better place to live. And fortunately, my sister was at law school at University of Miami and uh, came down for a visit and never left. So I've been here since I got out of college. When was that? So what year was that? 1990. Nice. Right. I mean, you got to ask the guy you're dating him. What do you yeah, do? I mean, we'll be 30 years in real estate, but he's <laughs> wow. 19. I, I yeah, think it's I'm 35 important years to know old. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Graduated college very early. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, Miami looks very different today sure than is. it did in 1990. Mm-hmm. It looks different today than it did in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair point. Fair point. How did you ultimately find your way into real estate? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, I had no experience, no background in real estate, but I was bartending here when I first moved to town, and I met somebody who introduced me to an industrial real estate broker in Doral, and his name was Tony, and Tony and I hit it off, started as his apprentice, bartending at night, learning the real estate business during the day, shadowing Mm -hmm. him, and that's all I've ever done since I've been here, bartending and commercial real estate, so thanks to Tony and... uh, Getting me into this business. And you still bartend, just not for money, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> bartend for friends and family, <laughs> just for fun. You're right. Right. But you're <laughs> Although I do miss it. It right. was fun. So 30 years in real estate and you always right. were, you always specialized in industrial, right? Industrial and office. So not too much in the retail world and no residential. I've never sold a house or uh, any place you would live. So just industrial and office. And, and so industrial is kind of unique. I mean, I want you to clarify for people mm-hmm. who may not understand exactly what industrial means, but to me, industrial is, you know, it's one sector that you're expecting continued strength and which is a little sure. unique, right? Can, yeah. I mean, look, it, it's something that when you look around, everything you have in your home, in your office sits in a warehouse at some point, it comes on a ship or a plane to get here. All of that logistics and distribution and storage of goods, that's what we focus on. So our clients are are groups that distribute, they manufacture, they are in the e-commerce business. When you get on your phone, you order from somebody, it's coming from a warehouse, typically close by. So those are the demand drivers, those industries. And because of the growth in South Florida of the population over the last 20, 25 years, 
It's just increasing demand. And we have so little supply of land for industrial between the ocean and the Everglades and high-rise condos and residential and golf courses. There's only so much land that any city or county will allow you to build warehouses on. So it has been a rapidly increasing price point for leasing, for sales, anything to do with industrial because you have a limited supply of land. Yeah. So looking at it, you said the last 20 years, obviously there's been growth in that market. I like to look at it, I guess, up to 2019 or beginning of 2020. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, right, with the boom, well, I'd say boom post-2020 and COVID. And now what we're seeing here in South Florida, what impact did it, I mean, I imagine the impact of the dredging of the port had a considerable impact on that too, right? In terms of the popula- the population growth is one thing, mm-hmm. but also with the dredging of the port and the larger ships coming in, how big of an impact did that have on the industrial space? That's a good point because when it was going on, there was a lot of talk about it really ramping up demand in South Florida. But what's happening, we're at the end of a peninsula. So no matter how good our port may be, it's only feasible to bring a certain amount of product in through Mm. the tip of a peninsula. So a lot of goods are still going to Savannah and going to even Jacksonville and then further up the East Coast. Initially, the thought was that goods coming from Asia through the Panama Canal would all stop here, get offloaded, sit in a warehouse, go on a train and move out. But over time, they realized that that's not necessarily the best use for our market Mm. because of our high cost of real estate and labor. So we do get those big ships, but only a portion of the goods come off them. Then they continue Mm. sailing up the coast. So it's been a driver of demand, but certainly not as much, in my opinion, as population growth of consumers here locally Mm -hmm. who are just demanding more goods to be consumed locally. Yeah. And I would imagine Amazon... Yeah. You know, and you mentioned e-commerce, but mm-hmm. let's let's call it what <laughs> call it is. It is. It's yes. called Amaz- the yes. Amazonification of uh, of consumer buying that has to have impacted it as well. A tremendous impact. If you look at the absorption of industrial space during 2020, the COVID year, in South Florida, at least 50% of that, of the total square footage, was Amazon-related. Wow. They are just taking every wow. square foot they <laughs> can find. And what they're doing, which is a little bit interesting compared to others— is you may have a project that is slated to have two or three buildings built on a site. They're just leasing one of the buildings and they're leasing all the land for the parking, for all their delivery vans and their cars, Uber drivers to stack up. So you're not seeing as much construction being done, but you see that construction disappearing from the pipeline, which again drives up costs because there's just that much less square footage for other tenants to take. So because they can pay whatever they need to, if they want to be in a certain area, they're able to really drive demand. And that has been a huge impact in the last 12 to 24 months. So what happens when there's a, like you said, there's a limited amount of land, right? We have the water on one side, the Everglades on the other. I mean, what happens at some point, they're going to run out of land to build. I mean, prices obviously continue to go up. Demand is going to continue to go up. So where's the breaking point? What can happen in order to sort of release the valve a little bit? And yeah, help great that? question. So what we see is repurposing property. For instance, we sold former golf course to a national developer. It was shut down. It had gone bankrupt. It wasn't in use, but it was a great 80-acre site in an infill location close to I-95, close to where the demand is from residents. And so they bought the land, built 800,000 square feet of buildings, leased it out to tenants who are going to serve that community. Some of it is produce. A produce company took a whole building there and they Mm -hmm. distribute to all the high-end restaurants and hotels and resorts. So you can take an old golf course, repurpose it. In some cases, 
like in New York, in the boroughs of New York, we see multi-story warehouses. So yeah. here we haven't seen it yet, right? yeah, yeah, but the first all, right? one, <laughs> Prologis, which is the largest industrial REIT that owns industrial space around the world, they bought a site just east of the Miami International Airport where they have plans drawn to do a two or three story building. Right. And the key there, you hear this word a lot, maybe you guys hear it, but in our industry, infill locations, right? So yeah, what the is idea, that? You so that you, right. So historically, industrial went out to the outskirts of cities where there was free land or available land, and you just had to drive out there. But because time for deliveries is so important, they want to move those back closer to the population base. Mm. So infill is really anything in a dense area that's closer to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And that saves time when you order on Amazon. You don't want to wait three days. You want to wait less than a day. So the a closer day. it is, yeah, how, yeah. an hour, right, exactly. Right. So the closer they can be, the better off they feel is servicing their customers. So, so, so maybe some big box that are closing may turn into correct. industrial or empty retail locations like shopping centers and stuff. That's happened with Amazon and other cities. We haven't seen the retail conversion yet, but what we've seen is some of these older, underutilized, obsolete industrial buildings that mm -hmm. have been sold to be knocked down and then redevelop with modern distribution space for that purpose to be able to be close to the consumer. That'd be interesting. Is there a zoning issue though? Do they have to get it rezoned for industrial if it's a retail or a big box location? Yes. And that's not easy. Yeah. The golf course, for example, right. took three and a half years to get approved and it turned out great. The, the neighbors are very happy with what's there. Mm -hmm. But initially, it's, a, it's sure. a learning curve for everybody to say, do I really want industrial? Well, people have the mindset of smokestacks and pollution. But these are modern, clean buildings built to lead specifications in some places that are really there just to be closer. So you have less traffic, less truck time on the road, less exhaust fumes. People like Amazon buying electric delivery vans. So all of their parking now is prepared for charging the electric vans. So a lot of this, you know, it's, it's moving in the right direction, but it is still a lot of space being absorbed and built out. Yeah, I believe are, it. Are I was seeing that the lead, uh, are you seeing lead spill over to and clean building spill over to industrial? Yes. Obviously it's taken off in office and residential to some degree, but. Yeah, for sure. And that's a differentiator for some of these groups. You know, the biggest of the big, the REITs that are, you know, huge companies with billions and billions of square feet or billions of dollars of real estate, they want to show that they're conscious of the environment. So they'll start implementing those lead specifications for new construction in certain areas or certain projects. So it's certainly something that they're cognizant of. Definitely a slower mover in industrial than it was in office, mm -hmm. but it's moving that direction. So we have industrial and then there, what's the difference between industrial and light industrial? If you can enlighten our audience and frankly me for that Sure. It's the same uh, as Bud and Bud Light. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, the, pretty much everything we have here in South Florida is light industrial. Okay. We don't have heavy manufacturing, like an auto manufacturer or something of that sort that really has noxious fumes and it's okay. hazardous materials and it's something you want to stay far away from. Mm -hmm. Would be maybe classified as heavy industrial or you might say industrial. And light industrial is more distribution, storage, things okay. of that sort, or assembly of, of parts. But you're not really manufacturing dirty things using a lot of natural resources. And All right. So stuff. everything we're talking about is light industrial, basically. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, that's one of the right. things Miami has always been known for. Right. Garment manufacturing, or historically was, that all moved into the Caribbean mm -hmm. due to tax laws. But we really only do some assembly. We do repairs of uh, jet engines and aircraft parts. Very mm -hmm. big business here for manufacturing. But that's what we call manufacturing here. And it's really more of assembly than truly manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, you said, Steve, I know you don't do any residential, but you do office 
And so office is certainly very different from industrial and, and maybe now more so than ever. You know, how are you, what are you seeing in the office slash retail space? I guess those are two different things too. Yeah, but you're talking about due to COVID or just in general in South Florida? Yeah, yeah. because during COVID, as as we, most of us saw, work from home became very popular. Yeah. And we're just now starting to see people come back to the office. However, what's interesting about South Florida during COVID was so many people relocating here from whether it's Boston, New York, Chicago, even California, which we didn't see in the past. Right. So with the influx of those new tenants, we're seeing the office market pick back up much faster than anybody would have expected. So we, if you read the papers, you see some announcements of hedge funds coming in. There's a group from Chicago that just signed for two floors in a brand new building being built at 830 Brickle, which is peak pricing, you know, nearly $100 a square foot, similar to Manhattan pricing for office mm. for brand new, mm-hmm. you know, class A plus space. If that tenant didn't move here, who is going to absorb that space? I don't know. But the nice thing is we are seeing many more of those businesses coming here. There was an announcement of 700 jobs in South Florida announced in last year, over $100,000 average salary. We didn't see that in the past. So it was more back office and smaller professional services businesses. So seeing these substantial, well-funded companies coming here, hiring and bringing new employees, really a benefit for the overall economy. Yeah. So do you think that that is kind of served as a balance to the COVID decline, if you want to? You know, Absolutely. You want yeah, to which, was, which wasn't expected. I think, you know, if any of us looked nine months ago and said, what do you think is going to happen in the next nine months? Are people going to move here in droves with their businesses? No, maybe mm. people come and stay here because of the weather or something and rent a house. But we've now seen really people putting roots down here. Right. Yeah, I have a, a realtor friend, a, a high-end residential realtor who tells me what's happening with whether it's developers coming here from New York saying that they want to get in on the game here, they see what's happening and they're paying huge prices for waterfront homes or anything they can redevelop. And the demand is insatiable. The prices are through the roof. It's really just incredible. And none of that is foreign capital. It's all domestic. Where historically here in South Florida, the biggest influx of buyers for residential and other properties was Latin Americans and Europeans. And obviously for 14 months, they haven't been able to come here. So all of this demand, which is booming, mm-hmm. is just domestic capital. So it'll be interesting to see when the doors open up again and we have the international visitors, how that works with now we have domestic capital really competing with foreign capital for limited supply. So I, I would imagine you're dealing with folks from outside of Florida coming down as well, right? Yes. In terms of light industrial stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there discussions about the need for more infrastructure? Like, I, I mean, we're bringing all these people in, all these businesses, yeah. right? Everyone used to look down here and say, oh, it's like a banana republic and right. you know, we can't be there. And we have some infrastructure, but we don't have everything. Like, is there a talk among the real estate folks and yourself talking about the need for that and, and talking with government agencies? I mean, is there any discussion around that? I think the discussion around that comes when somebody's trying to do a development project, and that's when the city or county steps up and says, look, you want to add how many square feet, how many people you need to add an intersection at this expressway or something along those lines. So it's typically done in concert with that. But in South Florida, especially in Miami, we've been so far behind the curve forever. You compare it to Broward and you see the way the highways were built with room to expand the lanes. In Miami, it was, unfortunately, we didn't, nobody prepared for that 50 years ago, didn't expect this. So, you know, in certain parts of South Florida, Palm Beach and Broward, they're a little bit more prepared. But here in Miami, it's going to be very hard to do. We just have just a limited supply, again, of land for everything, you know, whether it's industrial or office or residential. Right. And I I think those, the more northern counties had the benefits of learning from our mistakes down here because development started here in Miami and has spilled over and 
grown up the up the corridor. Well, probably some degree. and public yeah. transportation is just non-existent effectively, non-existent. right? Um, and, and look, the mentality here is people like to be in their cars, kind of like Southern California. It's a mindset that I don't know yeah. how we change that because it is just ingrained in the fabric. Well, I mean, it's needed, right? I mean, there's there's no alternative, right? You know, I mean, yes, there's a train and there's some of that, but it's really not very user friendly and not exactly. yeah, not efficient and effective. So I don't see that changing at any point in terms of people getting out of their cars. Nope. Although the urban centers are being built around, I think so that they, they are. change it a bit. And some of those projects, they're not even building parking with the condominium or the apartment buildings. For that reason, it's just too much. They can't fit everything on a site. And so they cater to people who are like the millennials who may want to live, work, play very Mm -hmm. close by, walk to work, take a scooter, something like that. So it's nice to see that there's at least a subsection of the economy that's willing to do that. But in general, I think we're all used to doing it the way we've always done it. It's hard to make wholesale changes like that. What are you or, or the folks you work with seeing in terms of retail that's, I know, a completely different sector. We've sure. talked about light industrial office. What about retail and what's going on there? So before COVID, there was still a move away from brick and mortar retail. Mm-hmm. People have gotten more used to ordering online, whether it is Amazon or just directly from the vendor. So that was happening. And then add to it the uh, COVID effect of nobody going to stores. So in my opinion, what we've seen here in South Florida, we're fortunate because we have a lot of people who like to eat out at restaurants. Restaurants are booming yeah. and they're moving here in droves from New York, from other places. In my mind, there is a surplus of restaurant demand. Traditional brick and mortar retail, not so much. Yeah. That's really going to be a longer haul. And I think maybe repurposing some of those properties for other uses, ancillary uses, because we just don't have enough demand for people coming in and wanting to shop in a store, a local store. It's definitely changed the landscape dramatically in the retail side. Right. And services and the things you can't do by e-commerce, getting a haircut or, right. you know, some kind of entertainment. Experiential know, type. Experiential type. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. And Rather, that's where right. restaurants fit in and they're drivers of demand for these shopping centers. But again, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to attract people with something that they can't do easier someplace else. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because now, you know, now there's all this demand. So now that we have all these great restaurants with all the people moving down, you just can't get into those exactly. restaurants because they're all, we're victims of our own success. You know, exactly. It's, it's really interesting. It, yeah, I, I wonder how much that impacts the office sector because you mentioned this big hedge funds and finance companies moving down here from New York or Chicago. They're all going to demand A and A+. plus space. So what happens to B, C and and below that is are those going to fall prey to, you know, the problem of people working remotely and so and they won't be propped up by the movement here. That's a great question. Think? I think it's going to put pressure on the lesser quality buildings for that reason, just like you said. So what we're seeing in some cases is people who may have had say 10,000 square feet of office realizing now that they could probably survive with 5 to 7,000 square feet given part-time work from home and and other issues. So those folks may end up moving to less expensive space as well, realizing that they don't need to be in the most expensive, fanciest building because they don't have that many visitors or they don't spend as much time there. So they'll backfill the less expensive space, making room for these new, you know, high-tech groups that don't mind paying top dollar dollar, for space to be, because it's prestigious. Right. And they're also accustomed to paying, like you said, New York rates. rates. Right. And I see see that with with residential as well, right? They're coming Mm -hmm. down here and they're like- Because it looks cheap to them. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. What is super expensive to us and out of whack in the market, to them is, you know, what do you get for a thousand square foot apartment in Manhattan 
versus what you can get a 3,700 square foot townhouse for here. Exactly. So yeah, I think there's going to be some of that, but I was interested to hear what you said about there were 700 jobs of 100,000 or more. There's got to be some more of that too, in order to justify for people to be able to afford the real estate, the increase in pricing in terms of goods and services, right? Right. But we're also seeing, and it's happened at different times in the past when the prices of residential get too high, we see people move further south in Dade County. So down towards Homestead. So right now there are about 25,000 rooftops or homes being built in Homestead for that reason where it's more affordable. So it does give people options. Obviously, it's a long commute if you're going to work in Miami. But if you have the ability to work remotely part-time, then maybe it's a good balance. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that the influx of new residents here in the last 12, 14 months has driven prices in residential really high. It's really incredible. Things sell in in hours, not even days. And uh, at prices people never thought were possible. It's incredible. And the rental market is a little bit down or is that also residential rental or, you know? No, the residential rental up, is market up. is on fire as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are examples of people paying 20, 30, 50,000 a month to rent a house on Miami beach. More on the more, water. Two, yeah. Right. 200,000 yeah. on the high end a right. month. And it's, it's something that we never had seen before, especially right. in the summer, right? We had people coming down here in the summer renting for six months or 12 months. And, you know, that was our, our downtime. So it'll be interesting to see if it resets next summer as People travel overseas, you know, nobody can leave the country. So Miami is a great option for them. What happens when they can freely travel to Europe or Asia? I wonder what will happen when the August hits or September hits and they they walk outside and feel feel it. (laughs) And they said, all right, let's pack up. Let's get out of here. Yeah. But you know, there's been so much money spent here. You know, will people move here permanently or keep that six months in a day for their tax status and still spend the time here? So uh, that's what we think is going to end up happening. If you drop $20 million on a house, chances are you're going to spend some time here to take right. advantage right. of it. But, the thing um, is, they were going to come here anyways. Every New Yorker right. is mandated to come to South Florida at some point in their life. They just would typically move here when they're in their 70s or 80s, well, and now correct. they're doing it when they're 40s. Well, 30s, so, the, you know? so the person that's buying the $20 million is not their only home. They probably have three Right. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so they're here, like you said, maybe the six month in a day and they're not here in the summer and mm-hmm. they're only here when they want to be. But like the average person, and I say average, it's really above <laughs> average. It's the person that's buying the home that's, you know, seven figures or high six figures, not eight yeah. figures. And the demand there is crazy. And those are the people that may be putting down roots, right? Like sure. bringing their kids down and putting them in school and enrolling yes. them. and. Yeah. Getting jobs. Right. We're working with a, a company right now moving from Long Island, and that's what they're doing. They're buying homes, the two partners mm-hmm. for their children. They're living here. They're signing a lease to move their business down. Right. And they've just decided enough is enough, and this is where they want to be. And you know, we see a lot of that. Yeah. I've heard a lot, and I've seen a lot. And I know there's the two sectors everyone talks about, tech sector and also the finance sector. Mm-hmm. But I think there's more, right? Are you seeing sure. more in terms of other sectors moving down other businesses? Yeah, yeah, on the industrial side. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we see more often. And again, it's it may be a slow move where people are opening a branch down here. Mm-hmm. But that's similar to what happened with South Americans. They would come here and... You know, their kids would go to school maybe, then they'd buy a business, then they'd move part of their business here. And the next thing you know, they're living here full time and they're members of our community and and not going back and forth as much. So I kind of see that same transition right. happening with the domestic. It's the crawl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is steady and strong right. and we don't see it ending. And again, when the borders open and Latin Americans can come back and Europeans, 
think they're going to be fighting, happen. right? They're going to be fighting over the same right. properties, the same, you know, to be here because they've all enjoyed it and they know there's a reason why they come here as well. So, so maybe the foundation is being built. And then when you've got, like you said, the South Americans or the Europeans coming back, they can maybe build off of that foundation. Right. Hmm. Wow. Really fascinating stuff. We are, Miami is truly, uh, you know, a melting pot. And I, I love it. I love that, you know, the diversity that we have Likewise. here. And I just, and I, you know, I think, um, want to see continued growth in that area, you know? Yeah. We're fortunate to be here. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's a great place to raise a family, but it's also a great place to be in business. And again, having more demand, more people moving in adds to the pie. As long as they all drive safely and courteously, <laughs> exactly I think we'll be, we'll be fine. We didn't talk about this before, but I actually have a question for you. I don't know if you know anything about that. Remember that mega mall project that we, yes. we had heard about? I mean, right. is that still on or what's going on with that? <laughs> that, remember that it's out west, like yeah, where they were going to have a know. ski slope out there, right? Or else. Well, the group that is developing it has built a facility in East Rutherford, New Jersey, right by the Giants Jets Stadium. Mm-hmm. They've had some issues there. It's open, but it hasn't gotten to the point where it's really yeah. taken off. Obviously, COVID was bad, so we've heard rumblings that they may consider selling some of the land. They mm-hmm. may downsize the scale that they were planning to do. But I don't think we'll know for sure for probably another 12 months or so. They were still going through the process of getting the approvals. Right. But when it comes time to writing a check and putting a shovel in the ground, I'm not sure that it's going to happen, at least not the way that they said it was going to happen. Right. So maybe some more uh, availability for light industrial. Right. But interestingly enough, in that area, which is Hialeah, Hialeah Gardens, Mm -hmm. there's battles between industrial and residential. So there are residential projects being built one after another right next to industrial. Because again, there's just a limited supply of land and some of this was already zoned industrial. So it's easier to use that land than trying mm-hmm. to rezone something. But there's also demand from home builders in the same area and retail. So it's interesting that we're seeing both, you know, in high demand at the same time. Yeah. Back yeah. in 2005, six, seven, you know, during the big run up in home building, a lot of industrial land in Dade County was taken out of the industrial pipeline and converted to residential because mm-hmm. they could put it to use faster and make more money doing that. And that hurt the industrial sector, which right. is why we're now such high demand and high prices because we've taken a lot of that supply pipeline out of the pipeline. You know, you mentioned like the, the unique features of Miami being limited by with the ocean on one side and, you know, the Everglades on the other. But is this industrial? Is it limited to South Florida? I would think that this is sort of a more of a national trend that industrial is going to continue to be strong and all over the country. It is. But when you take markets, the big industrial markets for distribution are Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, LA, and Northern New Jersey, like New York area. Mm -hmm. They have surplus land because you can go out another mile or two to another intersection, find some greenfield sites, maybe it's an old farm, and start building. We just don't have that. It's like Manhattan here in a way. It's really like an island. It's very tight. With water on both sides. And so we're limited. So our prices go up faster than in those areas because you do have alternatives. You can go Mm -hmm. 30, 40 miles well, Dallas, I mean, right. anything in Texas is just, there's just right. land. Land, right. plentiful land yeah. in Atlanta. So that's why you see the bigger buildings being built there because right. they can serve a region. Right. Where, again, we're at the end of the peninsula. So it's really what needs to be here for us to consume. But, you know, there's one thing that's really been interesting in COVID is the cruise industry. Mm. So Miami, Fort Lauderdale, two busiest cruise ports in the world, 10 million passengers a year go through those two ports. It's been 14 months since there's been a cruise. And yet our economy is booming. Yeah. Residential is on fire. Industrial is on fire. We haven't seen any of these groups give back space. And it's just interesting. really interesting to try to dissect why that hasn't happened. 
And what we hear is that these businesses, not just the cruise lines themselves, but the suppliers mm-hmm. have pivoted and they'll distribute to people's homes or they'll distribute to restaurants or other businesses locally rather than to the cruise lines. But you think about 10 million people a year, that's a lot of liquor, that's a lot of food, that's a lot of linens, furniture, yeah. you name yeah. it. And Hotel none of that has happened right, yeah. in 14 months. So when that opens up again, another demand driver on top of the tourists coming back that we haven't even factored in. And it's crazy now. So I can only imagine how much more pressure we're going to see on pricing. Hospitality is going to take off again. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it started, obviously there's been a lot, but but, but not to the level it was like you said, the 10 million passengers, for example, they have to stay somewhere when they come down and they buy food and they buy clothing and Mm -hmm. the ships need all that stuff. So it's, it's really a piece of the economy, big piece of the economy that's been missing for over a year. So when that comes back, it's really going to, you know, keep things up. See, can Miami sort of take its status to the next level, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everyone's talked about it for years, but it never really hit, like in terms of becoming a second or first tier city, like a Manhattan or right, Boston. But, now, even, but, but now, now there's a lot more talk about it yeah. with these kind of high yep. tech jobs and big finance companies and tech companies coming in. It's got that feel. Hopefully we can satisfy the demand for labor yeah. with, with good quality labor. I know some of these groups bring people with them, mm-hmm. but others are hiring locally, which is great for, for yeah, our local good. economy. Yeah, yeah, and building the foundation. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. Hopefully it sticks. Yep. I agree. What, Steve, most of our listeners are lawyers or are related to the legal field, just shifting gears a little bit. What kind of advice are you giving to not just law firms, but any small businesses that have office leases or spaces that are, you know, maybe their leases are coming up? Are they, you know, people buying? Are they renewing? Are they extending? Should they be looking for new space? It's such a unique time. How are you guiding, you know, your clientele and you know, I would, I would say it's really case by case because there are some groups that maybe have a certain amount of office space, for instance, and they've been in that size for years. They don't really expect to grow or want to grow. They like the size they're in. Some of those groups have bought buildings or bought office condos because they're not worried about expanding and contracting. Whereas other groups that are in a growth mode, you know, we look at maybe having uh, lease termination rights when they negotiate a lease so that if they do expand more than they expected, and that landlord doesn't have enough space for them, they have the option to get out of that lease. It's not easy to get, especially Mm -hmm. from institutional landlords. They don't like lease termination options, Mm -hmm. but that's something to strive for. But then take the flip side of somebody who's long-term growth plans, they expect to be around for a long time, lock in rent today because rental rates are going up faster than the fixed increases in your rent. Typically, a lease increases 3% per year. The market's growing faster than that. So if you do short-term leases, you're going to be at the risk of the market pricing when you come back out to market. So again, if you're in that kind of industry or that business that you can plan ahead, lock in and lock in those increases at a reasonable amount rather than taking the risk. That's interesting because I think most of the conventional wisdom or conversations, not not wisdom, but the conversations are about everybody downsizing and taking Mm -hmm. less space or trying to get temporary leases or whatever. But, you know, you make a great point. They're they're even moving out of the center of the city, right? And moving out to where people are. Like you said, if you have people that can afford and move down to Homestead, maybe you have a site down there near them so they don't have right. to commute as much. And I think there's going to be some of that too, you know, exactly. some of that fractional. Right. Because look, we, we've all learned from this. Yeah. The question is how much of it sticks? Everybody was working from home. It's not going to always be that way. So is it a 20% that you can work through and that gives you a better workforce because right. you're flexible? So in your industry, in your environment, kind of look at that 
and then make the decision based right. on what really works for you may not work for somebody else, right? Doctor's office, they still need the space. They still need to be right. where they are. More people moving here, they probably need more space. But maybe a law firm or architectural firm can do some remote work and they need less office space. So really industry-specific and site-specific. I'd say industry-specific, business-specific, individual even specific, exactly. right? Some people in your business may be more apt to work at home versus working in the office. So exactly. it just really depends. But yeah, I mean, who knows? Like, who knows what's going to happen? It's has it, interesting. Has it, has it changed the work in remote, changed your business that much? I mean, arguably somebody from New York could look at a space with drone or video footage, but they still need to come down and knock on walls and, and see things in person? Or how's it impacted you? You know, it's interesting. We sold a building last year to an institution that never saw the building. The deal was negotiated during COVID from April to July. We walked through the building with Zoom and they were watching from New York and LA and they ended up buying the building. It's a $22 million building, not a small investment, not huge, but a good size investment. And they never stepped foot in the building. Wow. So it can be done. It's not preferable. So in our world, because we're in the field a lot, it's easy for us. We're almost always mm. working remotely anyway. We only spend, personally, a few hours a week in an office sitting at a desk. So for us, it's pretty easy. But I would say we're not the typical tenant, right? So all these users that we work with, the distributors, they need to be at their warehouse. They need to keep an eye on things. They're driving trucks, forklifts. They need to be there. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's not an option. Yeah. Really fascinating stuff. These are interesting times. And I, I could talk to you for hours, yeah. Steve. It well, is. I charge after the first hour. So <laughs> yeah. make sure you get your checkbook ready. <laughs> yeah. Now, the real estate obviously has always been a big industry here in Miami. And when we say there's no industry, I mean, obviously real estate and tourism are the two biggest, I would sure. say, down here. But it seems like more is coming and that'll bolster everything else, including the, the real estate is a big driver. So super interesting to know kind of what's happened and what is anticipated to happen. So yeah. thank you, man. Where, where, uh, where can people find you, Steve? Find me at Newmark. LinkedIn, Steve, oh, LinkedIn Medwin. Steve Medwin. Sure. We'll uh, put your uh, contact info out mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Contact info. Snapchat. Snapchat. No, they can't. No Snapchat, <laughs> no TikTok. Sorry. Right. <laughs> okay. Steve Medwin, thank you very much for being a guest on the Practice Podcast. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Nelson, Nelson for having shout me. out to our great producer, Nelson Rosado. Thank you, sir. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron. <laughs>